Welcome everybody. Happy Friday. It is Soar Financial Live, SF Live, episode number 47. I'm joined by one of my favorite CEOs in the mining industry. He's definitely in the top five CEOs I've worked with in the past, George Ogilvy. He's president and CEO of Rubicon Minerals. I'll switch over to George in just one second. Most of you know the spiel already. Please use hashtag AskRMX. That's the ticker of the company for your questions during this live stream. We'll get to the questions at the end of our conversation with George. We got some questions prepared that we're going to run through. Also, make sure to follow us on Twitter, follow us on YouTube, subscribe to our channel. That way you get notified when we go live with another update. Let me switch over to George now. I'm super excited to have him on and uh, let me unmute him real quick. There he is. And uh, we are good to go. George, how are you doing? How are things? Yeah, I'm well, thank you, Kai, and thank you ever so much for having us on your uh, show. We greatly appreciate it. No, it's a pleasure, and uh, I was really hoping to have you on. Like The problem with a daily show is you can't do it all at the same time, right? Yeah, exactly. So, uh, how have you been holding up? How has been uh, the, the last 10 weeks for you, and I'm sure work-wise as well? Yeah, well, up? it's actually been 13 weeks. We temporarily closed the corporate office since the 12th of March, and Myself and my executive team have all been working from home uh, remotely since then. And of course, there's no corporate travel. We're kind of in an unfortunate position because with COVID-19 and where our business is currently at, at at the moment with advanced exploration, infill drilling and feasibility studies, you know, our, our business has not been material affected. So we only have 30 employees on the payroll and uh, most of those workers are shift workers. So on any one day, we would have no more than eight or nine people reporting to work. So the site sort of lends itself naturally to social distancing. Our consultants on the feasibility study are all working from home and, uh, you know, uh, working remotely as well. We've asked them to ensure that they have an alternate or a designate. So if one of the lead principals in a key area, you know, were to become sick and is unable to work from home, we have somebody who can step into his shoes at a moment's notice. That way we don't lose any time on the delivery of the feasibility study, which is scheduled uh, before the end of uh, September of, uh, of this year. Okay, fantastic. And, <clears throat> sorry. And we're going to get to the feasibility study in a minute, and there are so many things we can talk about in that regard. But I want to kick off the conversation with your name change. Okay. okay. So you got an AGM coming up, uh, and you're asking for approval to change the name to Battle North Gold Corporation. And um, we've been marketing together a, a few times, and uh, I've asked that question before because Rubicon has a bit of a history. And I asked, like, George, why don't you change the name or come up with something? And you always said, Kai, it's like putting lipstick on a pig. And now when yeah. I saw the press release, they're like, oh, okay, now he's changing the name. And my idea was, what is he seeing in the feasibility study that might make it different or, what, yeah. or what, where, where is it coming from right so maybe yeah. give us some history on that please yeah well let, let's go back three and a half years then when I joined Rubicon and we were just coming out of a restructuring I remember specifically myself and my team had a very heated discussion about rebranding the company at that point in time and we came to the conclusion that if given the legacy and the reputational issues that Rubicon had suffered three and a half years ago through its demise, we felt that if we rebranded the company at that point in time, people might perceive wrongly that we were trying to put lipstick on a pig and it was smoke and mirrors. And we would have no factual information to, 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 to argue against that. So over the last three and a half years, as people have followed the company, many have taken meetings, some haven't taken meetings, but we've been very upfront that this is Rubicon, this is what happened. This is how we're fixing it. And this is where we're going in the future. 
And we now feel we've reached a point in time after three and a half years of just diligently de-risking this project from a technical perspective. And given that we're gonna have our first feasibility study with reserves, which is economically viable or which Rubicon 1.0 never ever had, we believe with a feasibility study that will show robust economics, uh, it is now the point in time to rebrand the company. And given that our articles of association require shareholder approval to do that, and our AGM is looming on the 22nd of June, this is why now it's the appropriate point in time to move on because we're gonna show the market that at the end of this year that it truly is a very different company from what it was three and a half years ago. Yeah, and give us a little more color on why Battle North, because I'm scratching my head. It's like, and I'm not familiar, too familiar with Canadian history or war yeah. history as well. Like, why? Well, it's all <laughs> it's all related to our our battling characteristics. I mean, obviously, marketing this company and putting news flow out over the last three and a half years under the name of Rubicon, I, I can tell you, we've really taken it on the chin, and we understand why there are upset shareholders or former upset shareholders out there. So we really felt that our fortitude, our tenacity, our doggedness, our battling characteristics really exemplified the battle uh, sort of title. And then, of course, the mine itself is located in Red Lake, northern Ontario. That's the reason why we came up with the north. We're very gold focused and then obviously corporation. So that's how we came up with Battle North Gold assuming the shareholders uh, approve that and it's ratified by the board and the exchange. We've also got a complete rebranding and redesign coming as well of all the logo and the corporate website and all the literature and paraphernalia that goes along with that. And it looks very professional. Okay, so let's, let's expand on that. And then I purposely chose the discussion about the company name first, because for me, when I saw that, it's like, okay, George must be seeing something that is completely changing the trajectory of the company, maybe in the feasibility study. And that's sort of the segue into that feasibility study segment. Like, what do you see in terms of like, uh, no, not, not upside, like changes to, to the Phoenix Gold project that now triggered you to change the name and say, okay, we're at this point, the feasibility, you obviously have some preliminary number, numbers on your table, you're like you're working on it daily. Um, why is it triggering that now? And what triggered it, especially for you? Is there a certain, was there a certain trigger? Yeah, well, I mean, over the last three and a half years, all the infill drilling that we've did has been orientated drilling. So that's given us a, a, an opportunity to put together a, a better geological structural model. And of course, two years ago in the summer of 2018, we put a 40,000 ton bulk sample through the mill and we got more gold out by 14% than what the model predicted. So that gave some credibility and validation to the geological structural model plus the 43101 that we had put out at that point in time and the way in which we had modeled it with respect to the various assumptions. And we've always kept those assumptions from 2018 over the last couple of 43101s the same. So now that we're gonna produce a feasibility study where you know the costs are gonna be plus or minus 10%, all the capital equipment and supplies that we get, we have to go out and get three quotations. And we're actually gonna be dealing with a mine plan with reserves again which as i said earlier that rubicon never had i strongly believe you know with a positive feasibility study ahead of us in september there is an economically viable mine there and we have the expertise in this company with the management team to actually generate some significant return on investments for our shareholders 
given all the previously sunk capital and obviously those huge uh, tax loss pools that uh, that we have. And, you know, to give the listeners some, you know, uh, confidence as well, in the measured and indicated category now, the drill density on average is 15 metres. So eight metres in the measured category and 18 metres in the indicated. So if we can put stopping shapes into that resource block model that's drilled off on a 15 metre drill density in the measured and indicated, I'm confident at the end of the day that we can actually execute on that in the mine plan when compared to the life of mine plan within the feasibility study. I love that you use the word confidence because again, just like coming from experience working with you and like having you taken on the road and listened to your pitch a few times, you always mentioned like when you when you started out with Rubicon, you did your due diligence and everything and your confidence was, I think, you, like I hope I'm not misquoting you, but around 65, 70% whether it would work. Okay. And every time we went on the road again, after five, six, seven months, your, your confidence level increased, right? I think the last time we marketed, it's been a while now, unfortunately, but it was yeah. around 85, 90%, like 85%, I think was the last time. And that was about a year, year and a half ago. Right. So are you close to a hundred percent? Um, yeah, I'm, 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 I'm at a hundred percent now and actually beyond because obviously we've been doing further infill drilling since the last 43101 that we put out in January which obviously all the data was cut off last year, September. So we've got another seven months of infill drilling coming. We're going to convert more inferred over into M&I, and we're going to see the life of mine uh, increase over and above the initial 6.2 years that we saw in the PEA. So that's going to benefit the economics. And of course, Kai, you know, the other thing about business is, you know, timing is everything, and sometimes you need a little bit of luck. This project will make money at 1325, 1375 US dollar gold price. There's no doubt about that. But we've got the ability now potentially to see first production next year in 2021. And if these spot prices hold up, then the key performance indicators and the financials that will come out, both we're in the PEA and in the feasibility study are off the chart. And, you know, it's a it's good fortune, but we might just be looking to finance and put this mine into production over the next two to three years in a really very bullish uh, gold price environment. Timing time couldn't be better right now, to be quite honest. It's fantastic. Like the environment is right there with the feasibility coming out in the fall. And uh, <clears throat> I've got a bit of frog in my throat this morning. But um the timeline to production is is really interesting because it, it, the mill is ready. So let's, let's talk about the infrastructure for a second before we switch back to the PEA versus fee, upcoming feasibility. But um, since you mentioned timeline for production, let, let, let's hit on that. Um, yeah. What do you need to do to improve the, the current facilities or what, what's there and what state, is there, what state are they in? The, the mill is ready to go. It was built and designed for 1,800 tons a day. It's currently permitted for 1,250 tons per day. When Rubicon 1.0 ran the mill, and obviously when we ran it a couple of years ago, we saw metallurgical recoveries of 95% and 43% of the gold coming off of the gravity. So we've got no concerns about the mill. Um, the tailings pond is in place. There's an ammonia reactor that has to go into the wastewater treatment plant at a cost of approximately $6.5 million, which is in the capital cost estimate that reduces the ammonia from the cyanide destruction circuit and Rubicon 1.0 had issues with ammonia in the pond. So once that ammonia reactor's in, it, that deals with that situation. 
There's a 720 meter deep shaft with 10 ton skips that sit over the cage. On a 24 hour basis, the shaft will hoist between 2,500 and 3,000 tons a day. There's a 44 kVA electrical line right into the mine site. There's a 200 man camp there. And of course, we're eight kilometers outside of uh, Barmertown and Red Lake. And there's already 14,000 meters of development, sunk development already in the mine. So, so we have all the key uh, components that a mine actually needs. All we have to do now is get the feasibility study out, ensure it has robust economics, put the project financing in place, and then start with the uh, construction and development early in 2021. No, and the feasibility is like, I'm not expecting any negative surprises because all the sunk, the costs have already been sunk pretty much, right? So there was $600 million spent on the on the project before. That's right? correct. And that's why we have six, approximately $690 million of various tax loss pools in CEE and CDE and ITCs and Ontario mining tax pools. So that's where they come from significantly, the, the sunk cost in the past. Okay, let's go back just one step and before we talk about the tax pools, because they're going to be key in the second part of our conversation here. But uh, the PEA or F feasibility study improvements versus PEA, where are sort of some, some of the levers you can pull right now and some, something you can improve or update? Well, as I said, the PEA showed 6.2 years of, of, of mine life at an average annual production of 80,000 ounces of payable gold. The life of mine that will come out in the feasibility study with this infill drilling at the same production profile is probably going to be pushing eight years. So uh, that, that's a significant improvement. Uh, That'll right help with here. the NPV calculation dramatically, right? Yeah, yeah because obviously then uh, an, a, another uh, opportunity would be the timeline to commercial production in the PEA was set at 20 months. But we were going at a very conservative development productivity rate of 14.7 meters per day or five rounds. If, for example, we went at 20 meters per day, which is still conservative, that would shorten the timelines to commercial production by five to six months. So suddenly now we'd be looking somewhere in and around 15 months to commercial production. Uh, other opportunities, obviously, in the PEA, we had a contingency of 18%. The feasibility study, because you're getting quotes, three quotes on every piece of equipment or supply from vendors, you know, services from vendors, the contingency probably can go down to anywhere between 10 and 15% is probably more than enough uh, within the model. The other key opportunity is we set our gold price in the PEA at 1325 US or 1762 Canadian. And over that 20 month ramp up period, we produce 44 and a half thousand ounces of gold, which I'm seeing being replicated in the feasibility study to date. Now, it's 1762 Canadian, that's $75 million of revenue from gold sales in the pre-production period. Again, if we're selling our gold next year at today's spot price, which is 2350 Canadian, that's an additional six to $700 per ounce margin. And on 44,500 ounces, you're now looking at 25 to $30 million additional revenue from gold sales. So assuming, that the capital cost and the feasibility study remain the same as the PEA, potentially the funding requirement for the project could drop by the corresponding amount of 25 to 30, $30 million. Yeah, I'm now, just looking at your April fact yeah. sheet and 
the net pre-capital cost, like you actually give it here on the fact sheet, it's forty-two million dollars. That's yeah, exactly. <laughs> now right? I did enough so, of these feasibility studies to know, however, that when you go from PEA to PFS and then PFS to feasibility, because there's more detailed engineering and time passes, usually there is a cost escalation and a cost creep within the you know the higher level of engineering study. But I still think that net-net, with all the additional revenue we could realize, the funding requirement for the project is going to stay in and around that 80 to 100 million Canadian dollars, which includes the contingency, which, you know, is a lot of money. But compared to bringing other projects into production, uh, you know, it's actually quite a small sum of uh, money. No, it, it is. And like, I mean, quite interesting. Like, I'm going to ask you one question on like the forward sale of gold. Like you don't rarely see that because a lot of companies have production coming on before commercial and they don't utilize that as a certain like financing tool to build yeah. or to build out. So just maybe it's like, it's more of a timeline probably to commercial production. Like what, how you sequence certain things that you could use the gold sales, right? Or we, am I... we, we could. Um, I mean, we haven't made any decision on that. And only once we have a financial and an economic model that comes out of the feasibility study, will we then make any decisions on the structure of the financing. So how much debt, you know, can we put on the project without over leveraging it? Uh, therefore, you know, how much equity debt to equity do we need to raise, et cetera, et cetera. But another opportunity for this project is that there's a lot of pre-commercial production development that we want to put in place because in these high-grade nuggety style deposits where you can get a lot of volatility in the grade between stops, you really want to have your capital development 12 months ahead of your mining crews so you can you know, maintain your guidance and take out some of that volatility through better stop planning. But because we put that 12 months of capital development in, it's approximately 30 to $40 million of development. But because Rubicon 1.0 never declared commercial production, that would qualify as a Canadian development expense, which is CDE. Yeah. So we'll have the ability as part of the equity financing to use a significant portion of it through flow through. And CDE typically could be a 15 to 20% premium that we might be looking at versus the, the then spot price or the share price. So that's another opportunity to access capital markets, which, as we all know, flow through has been available for juniors and minimize dilution for the dilution for our shareholders. Fantastic. Like, I'm really excited to see the feasibility coming out. Um, there are not, not going to be too many surprises, but I think it'll just be another tick of the box and on the way to production. So that's great. Let's end the conversation about feasibility here because optimization optimization we can talk about that forever but um i really want to talk about the tax pools more and the situation in red lake because mm. your tax pools will play a critical critical role in my opinion there and you said 692 million dollars and uh quote uh, correct me if i'm wrong but i think half of it you can actually use in your own project and half of it in case of a sale could be transferred to another project in canada is that correct yeah, that's correct. I mean, we've had uh, tax opinions from various tax firms and, you know, if there was an M&A transaction on the table, then provided it's structured in the appropriate manner, uh, there is the ability to deploy, you know, tax pools to another corporation, another asset or another entity. And of course, with a corporation tax rate in Ontario, well over, you know, 30%, $350 million of tax pools that could be used outside of Phoenix just created a hundred million dollars of, of value. 
Yeah. No, I was going to ask you actually, like, what kind of value do you ascribe to that certain tax pool? Like, so, and you just answered that. So, $100 million. Yeah. Um, so, through the grapevine, I heard that you guys were involved in the bidding process for the Red Lake. Okay. So, yeah. you got your eyes and ears out, and you hear that. Uh, and what, one thing I was astounded by is like, not that you're reaching out, it makes a lot of sense area wise, but also you had the full financing package sort of lined up as well. It was ready to go. Run as a bit, it's like, and I know you've been, you mentioned it elsewhere before, but it's like, I think that's key to the overall situation, what's going on in Red Lake. And I want to hear more of your insights to the bidding process, how it went, and maybe why you didn't end up in first place. Yeah, well, yes, we were involved in the in the Newmont uh, Gold Corp sales process. Uh, we actually got into phase two of that process and uh, we got to the final two with the evolution. And at the end of the day, they just outbid us. Uh, and of course, they had access to the cash, which was obviously very important, whereas Rubicon would have had to have gone out and actually raised the money through debt and equity. I can tell you we had a couple of uh, serious financial backers that were supporting the company, but at the end of the day, we got outbid. What was interesting or what was uh, good about the process, however, was that you know we realized that when Newmont Gold Corp sold the Red Lake assets, uh, they sold them with no tax pools. There were tax pools, but Newmont Gold Corp as the parent company actually retained them and they get to be able to deploy them at Muscle Way or Borden Lake or other projects that we have in Canada. So now we've got an interesting situation where you have Evolution as a mid-tier, you know, six, seven billion market cap company coming into Canada for the very first time. And obviously they have no tax pools. And, um, you know, at 23, 2400 Canadian dollar an ounce gold, I think there's every opportunity that right from day one of acquisition on the 1st of April, uh, they might actually be generating real free cash flow and profits and therefore might be exposed to taxation. And of course, strategically, this is where um, Rubicon's tax goes, you know, could be hugely advantageous, not just for them, our, ourselves and our shareholders, but other entities out there as well. And what was also good about the process was obviously we got access into a data room that, you know, Gold Corp had been, uh, you know, building information on over many decades, including some of the regional information. And of course, when we put that together with some of our own data set, then obviously it's generated some high priorities for us when we get into regional exploration, which we think we should be in a position to start exploring upon as early as uh, next year, as, as we're moving Phoenix towards commercial production. Fantastic. I was like, unfortunately, our time format doesn't allow it to even talk about the exploration aspects of the project. Like we're already at 23 minutes right now and haven't even got to the question yet that we got on Twitter. So, um, no, but thanks for your insight on that Red Lake transaction. I think that that's really key. Like, so that our listeners actually know that you guys are quite active, not just focused on Phoenix, that there's interest in the tax pools. And they, there, there are a lot of moving parts in the area. Like Red Lake is super active with Great Bear as well. So there's a lot mm -hmm. of attention in the area. Yep. So really curious to see how that all unfolds, right? Um, let's get to that one question we got on Twitter. And it's, a, it's an interesting one because it relates also to the more technical discussion we had here on before. So I'm just going to switch over and uh, scroll down a little bit. And the question is... Uh, it doesn't show up entirely, but um, does the type of geology, high type basalt, at Phoenix affect gold recoveries or require more ore processing? Uh, no, it doesn't. I mean, um, Rubicon 1.0 was mining in the high tide basalt. They put 60,000 tons through the mill and they saw a 91.5% metallurgical recovery. 
as I said earlier, we put 40,000 tonnes through the mill, of which 30,000 tonnes came from three stoping blocks. And we got a 95% metallurgical recovery and 43% gold coming off with gravity. So the mill performs very well. And thankfully, in the high tide basalt, um, you know, it's re the mineralogy is relatively simple and uh, it, it processes well through our plant. Fantastic. All right, George, um, outlook for the next six months. Obviously, feasibility study is the big one. Um, what, yeah. what else can we expect maybe over the summer? Is there anything, any other, like I wouldn't say catalyst because the feasibility is the one overshadowing everything else, but is there anything else? Uh, investors I think could so, look Kai. I mean, since uh, the first quarter of this year, when the drilling was winding down on the infill drilling at Phoenix, we started to turn our attention to a couple of close proximity targets that all sit within a sort of a, a thousand meters of that shaft and big hungry mill on surface. One of those would be the McFinley deposit, which was a former producing mine. Today, it has a non-compliant resource of 67,000 ounces at 6.8 grams per ton in the ground. Historically, it was only drilled off a couple of hundred meters below surface. So we took chip and muck samples from the underground uh, areas that we have access to in the first quarter of this year. We now have an active diamond drill on the various levels there. So expect to see uh, the chip and muck and the uh, diamond drill results coming out in the next three to four weeks. And the plan of action there is to produce a compliant resource on McFinley at the end of the calendar year after the feasibility study comes out. That Our intention is to show the market that we're not a one-trick pony. And because the mill is not being fully utilized to its 1,800 tons a day, I'm expecting the feasibility will be around 1,600 tons a day. So there's 10 to 15% excess capacity that really needs to be taken up. And the way to do that is through incremental ounces, incremental tons from McFinley. And then of course, to the Northeast, we have the Penn Zone. We've had a diamond drill there since April of this year, drilling out a 2,500 meter program. Results for that, will, again, will be coming out in the next couple of months. And there again, 43101 early in 2021 to show that we've got lots of organic and incremental growth opportunities right next door to a, a full production shaft and a milling facility. Fantastic. And I, I was going to wrap it up here, but you said one thing um, that I need to just quickly get back to you on. And you said uh, your feasibility, you're expecting 1,600 tons, mill capacity is 1,800. But I, when I caught, caught you correctly, my understanding is you're only permitted for 1,200. Yeah, we're following the same tack that we had in the PEA. If you look at the PEA, um, in year two of commercial production, the throughput through the mill goes up to approximately 1,500 tonnes a day and then steadily increases. So what happens, Kai, is during year one of commercial production, at that point in time, we would have two years of history actually ramping up production and attaining commercial production there'd be 350 people on the payroll. We would go to the provincial regulators and given it's Red Lake that's been around for 80 years, 30 million ounces, third, fourth generation miners, we would give ourselves 12 months to have our permits amended up to 1800 tons per day. And we plan on following the same tact uh, within the feasibility study. Fantastic. I just double checked whether we got another question in, but we're good to go. Uh, George, thank you so much for coming on. It was just great. It was a pleasure. I think everybody saw why you're one of my top five CEOs in the industry. And um, 
everybody else thanks for your questions thanks for following us here on twitter make sure you watch the suit uh, subscribe to our youtube channel as well we all are on spotify too just for your short commutes right now and uh, everybody else have a great weekend george thanks for coming on and uh, please stay safe and we'll talk very soon thank you kai thank you